0: Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is half an hour of all the best science coming to you from Melbourne, Victoria. And um, this week on the show, we have a couple of stories. I've got my comrades here with me, Chris Stew. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello, comrade.
0: Hello, Chris. Um, Chris, what have you brought us?
1: Well, I have a story about uh, a new development in in uh, medical treatment. It's not; it's just been announced. I don't know if that actually the work has been published officially yet, but it is kind of a long-awaited achievement in gene therapy. The idea that you can treat genetic diseases with um, with uh, yeah genetic editing using the CRISPR technique, which I think we've talked about before.
0: Oh, of course, we are big. Fans of talking about CRISPR on
1: this show, Mm-mm-mm. CRISPR for those who cannot recall is just a fancy name for a technique of it's kind of like molecular scissors that cut out a bit of DNA and replace it with something else. And yeah, it's the kind of thing that people have been saying, oh, this will allow us to treat all kinds of inherited Mm. diseases and finally we're having some work being done on it this is not entirely the first time that it's been done but this Mm -hmm. is the first time it's been done where it's been injected into people's body to actually treat a genetic disease and yeah it seems to be working so it's exciting times
0: wow fascinating cutting-edge stuff Mm. using molecular scissors
1: hey i see what you did there yeah yeah thanks
0: yeah Yeah. and Stu, what do you have for us this week
2: well i do a lot of work in uh the plant pathology (gasps) area of mm. uh, of the world and it's a fun part of some of my job where i get to walk up to people and say you've got a lot of gall <laughs> on your plants here in your in your garden or in your in your orchard you're um, talking so, about
0: plant galls
2: yes Of course, I am. Yes. So it's a really, really super common thing on plants that they get these galls on them. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the galls are and what causes them. And there's one particular gall which uh, has a lot of (laughs) gall to becoming a problem (laughs) at this time of year. Or it's actually, no, it's a good time of year to treat this particular problem. But it's actually something where... It wasn't a problem until, well, until Europeans arrived in Australia and started causing the problem.
1: If I remember my um, French comic books from years ago, there was a village of Gauls that caused a lot of trouble for the Romans uh, in Asterix and Obelix. Yeah.
0: I once I once knew a, a, um, a Gaul, Charles. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh. Charles de Gaulle?
0: Yeah. Well, all this Gaul talk, there's going to be some science in there somewhere, oh, yeah, isn't, yeah, isn't, yeah. isn't there, Stu?
2: Oh, yeah, of course.
0: on with the show.
2: Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
1: There has been a lot of misinformation and wild claims going around about COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, You might have heard some people claiming that they make you magnetic.
0: I haven't heard that one.
1: No, it makes absolutely no sense. It makes zero (laughs) sense. (laughs) Magnets, how do they work? I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, basically okay. people get people get the vaccine or some of the people who've been near someone who got the vaccine claim that metal objects stick to them and they show themselves photos themselves on the internet with like keys and coins sticking to them. which interestingly, I don't know coins are not magnetic if you ever tried that and keys generally are not magnetic either so it makes no sense. That's my favorite <laughs> bit about it. They're, they're just they just need a wash. they're just they're sticky. A bit sticky. they're all yeah. Just sticky yeah. yeah sticky
0: stickiness and magnetism. Turns out they're two different things.
1: Exactly. Uh, Another one you might have heard is the fear that mRNA vaccines, like the Pfizer vaccine, uh, can I just say, fully vaccinated myself, or with the Pfizer vaccine. Congratulations. um, Some people claim that these mRNA vaccines are gene therapy that alters your DNA. Again, this is not the case. Like in biology, there's something called the central dogma of biology, I believe, which is basically the information flows one way from DNA to RNA to making proteins. Yes, there are some exceptions um, with reverse transcriptase kind of processing that kind of stuff, but generally it's pretty reliable. You know, an mRNA basically from the vaccine gets into the cells, makes the spike protein for the virus, and then it's gone. It doesn't stick around in the genes. It does not alter your DNA permanently. However, there is gene therapy out there, not in vaccines, but in the, in the world, there is gene therapy. And these are things that hold great potential for treating uh, inherited diseases. And there's been a lot of hope for the gene editing technique CRISPR. And now for the first time, there has been a treatment that involved injecting kind of CRISPR treatment into the blood to treat such a genetic disease. Right. So this has never been done before. This has never been done before. Um, and there's some reasons for that. Sorry, Chris, I was just going to
2: say, people have used CRISPR to, to do various things. And a lot of them have been looking at it as a gene therapy. But yep. they've, they've done things where they've taken Embryos and things like that and and treated the embryos and things with CRISPR. But this is one where it's actually a grown person where they're doing it too, is that right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, you're quite right that there was um, a particularly controversial case a couple of years ago of a rogue biophysicist in China who uh, claim to use CRISPR to treat an inherited disease in babies. And it was very controversial because you're not supposed to do that kind of experimentation on humans in that sense. Yeah, it is quite difficult. So CRISPR is this technique that's borrowed from bacteria. Um, it won a Nobel Prize in Chemistry last year for Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. And in fact, we'll come back to Jennifer Duna because she's involved in the story, but um, essentially what it does, it uh, uses kind of, as you said, uh, Claire, these molecular scissors that target a particular bit of DNA, snip it out, and then you can actually replace it with a different gene if you so choose, or you can just snip it out and um, get rid of the, the troublesome gene. Um, the trouble is that it is, it is. you do want it to be as precise as possible. I mean, there is a risk, certainly, that it could, say, target the wrong cells or target the wrong bit of DNA and cause bad mutations, which could lead to cancer and this kind of stuff. But it's also, you need it to get to the right tissues and the right part of the body where the problem is. And that's what's difficult in treating using it um, for with adults because how do you get these little tiny molecular scissors to the right part of the body? There have been other techniques before, as Stu has said. There has been um, you know embryos experimented on. There was actually some treatment given last year that was using um, to correct sickle cell anemia, uh, or a, there's another related disease they're looking at as well, I think a thalassemia. And what they did there is these are blood diseases, and what they did there was they actually removed the stem cells from the, from the patients, treated the stem cells with um, with CRISPR, then gave them like a chemotherapy treatment that kind of wiped out the stem cells in their own body mm. and then injected back the treated stem cells. So basically you took, essentially you removed all the stem cells, treat fixed right. them and then put them back. And then the idea was that would create um, blood cells that don't have the sickle cell um, problem. Yeah. So that seemed to work.
2: Sort of like a transplant, but maybe an enhanced plant?
1: Something like that. Yeah, it is actually very similar to a transplant. Yeah, it's basically the same as like a, um, a bone marrow transplant, but it's using the person's own um, stem cells rather than from a donor.
0: So that went, that went well, didn't
1: it? Yeah, that went well. Um, and yeah, that was, that was pretty impressive and there's some other ones going underway, but this current one is basically what they're doing. The trick is they're targeting the liver, um, and cause the liver is kind of a, it's a bit different. It takes in foreign, uh, foreign substances a lot easier than other parts of the body. So you can inject things into it and it'll absorb it. And plus the liver makes stuff. In this case, it makes, um, a troublesome protein. So the disease that they're looking at, and this is done by Jennifer Duna and her startup company, who have partnered with an established pharmaceutical company to do this work. And they're targeting this genetic disease called transthyretin amyloidosis.
0: Okay, it's a bit of a mouthful.
1: Yeah, and I don't expect you've heard of, of this particular. No. no. So it's basically, it's, it's, it involves this um, transport protein transthyretin, and the liver makes a kind of misfolded version of it. And um, this misfolded version of this protein then builds up on nerves and causes damages to the kidneys and to the heart and ultimately um, is usually fatal. Oh. So it's, it's pretty rare worldwide, mm. except in some locations. It's a bit of a curious disease. So it's um, there are a couple of locations in Portugal where there are about 1,000 people from about 500 families and 70% of the people in those families develop the illness. Wow. And there is a location in Sweden as well called Skeleftia. I don't think I'm pronouncing it right. It's called, but they refer to it as the Skeleftia disease, um, where one and a half percent of the population has this particular mutation. So apparently it has arisen around the world in various places just as a mutation that then kind of exists in the population.
0: So incredibly rare.
1: Incredibly rare. Wow. Like I said, though, it is it is usually fatal. Um, it can be treated with a liver transplant to get rid of the troublesome liver. Um, and there's recently been a couple of drugs approved in various countries that can stabilize it. But yeah, they, they thought this was a good opportunity to try a CRISPR treatment, simply because you have a very thing done in a very localized part of the body that you know you can reach with CRISPR. So what they did, um, there's only a fairly small trial. I had four men and two women who um, were injected with a lipid particle carrying um, RNAs, like mRNAs, like we've been talking about with the, um, the Pfizer vaccine, um, that contained the, the things that they wanted, like the, the CRISPR scissors and the right kind of recipe to find the correct part of the, the gene that causes this problem. And essentially, this one, they're not replacing the gene, they're just basically um, cutting it out. They're just snipping out the um, the the imperfect gene, um, and what they found is that uh, it seemed to work after 28 days. Um, particularly for the, there were three men who were given higher doses of the treatment. They had an 80 to 96 percent drop in the levels of the troublesome protein. Wow. Um, yeah, sorry, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I did I did miss that previously, but yeah, this is like a. It's basically. It's it's proof of concept certainly for the CRISPR technique, but it also is a cure for this rare disease because the other treatments, apart from the transplant, um, the other drug treatments, all they do is just kind of control it in the body. This is actually cures the the genes that are causing the, the problem. Wow, it's
0: in, in, incredibly incredibly impactful for those for that um, that cohort of people who have that disease.
1: Yeah, well, it seems to be. I mean, they need to kind of monitor it now for a, for a while. It could take um. It could take, uh, and certainly to see if it actually affects the, the, um, the symptoms, like cause if certainly if there is some of this protein buildup already, you want to make sure that, that can get removed. I mean, you hope that it will actually reduce the symptoms as opposed to just um, preventing other problems. So you do need to test that it actually affects the outcome of the disease. And you also need to make sure that it doesn't have any bad side effects. Like I said, like the, um, the wrong DNA being cut or that sort of thing. But look, it is pretty cool. Um, The fact that it is mRNA, like the Pfizer vaccine that we discussed, means that it doesn't stick around. There have been other gene therapies that use things like viruses to insert bits of DNA into the body to create new proteins or to change things. And you know, those genes can stick around and you don't know what they're gonna do, you know, in the long term. This one, it is just temporary thing, gets in, does its job and and then that's it. So yeah, it'll be good to see whether it works. Um, certainly has a potential for treating other liver diseases. They can show that they can do that. And who knows, they could maybe even use the liver to send um send the benefits to other parts of the body Not only of sight and sound but of mind a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination
2: that's the signpost up ahead your next stop lost in science if i say the word goal. What does it make you think of? I know what it makes Chris think of because he said so in the intro. Obviously, I'm not talking about the uh, the comic strip that Chris referred to earlier with Asterix and his his buddy. There's no magic potion involved here. What about the gallbladder? Well, there is, the gallbladder is, is related to this word. So oh. um, the word gall, and, and this is spelt G-A-L-L, it's a very old word, and it comes from a Latin word relating to bile, which, hence, related to the gallbladder, but it's it's all related to this uh, health idea, this ancient health idea that people's health was affected by various humors, uh, including two kinds of bile, <laughs> yellow and black bile. Okay. And um, and...
0: I'm I'm no doctor. Um, I'm just a mere human. Um, I've had my fair share of spews in my life. I've never seen black bile.
2: Obviously, you've been lucky enough to avoid the, the black bile humour.
0: Because that sounds terrifying.
2: Back in these days, when they were using the, you know, the humours of of health, lots of different lumps and bumps people developed were called galls, and they were linked back to this imbalance of these different humours. But obviously, the development of germ theory in the 17th, 18th century tended to push this idea away. And we don't really think of that as being a, a reasonable way to think about human
1: health anymore. There are some people in the world who do still subscribe to that, unfortunately.
2: Let, let's just hope that they stay healthy with using that method of um, identifying causes of illness In in the world of plants though you may notice quite often various lumps and bumps on plants which don't quite look like they belong and you can find them on leaves and on stems and various parts of the plant and in plant health these are still referred to as galls even though absolutely nothing to do with bile or the various humors or anything it's just what we've called these lumps and bumps. So Galls can be really small on a plant, little raised bumps on leaves, a really common sight on a lot of Australian wow. native plants. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you've got them all over the plant, you kind of think, is that a normal part of the plant? Does this plant just look like this? Um, but no, often it's not part of the plant. Usually it's not. And in in some cases you can get quite large. So uh, so in some wattles or acacia species, the galls can appear like big, shiny... Green fruit-like things hanging off the plant, but actually they're they're a reaction of the plant to a particular problem. Mm. So most of these plant galls are caused by tiny insects, and there's a huge number of insects that cause these galls. Um, they can be species of wasp or fly or psyllids, which are like scale insects and aphids and that sort of thing, which lay their eggs inside the plant tissues, and they can lay them in stems or the flowers or the fruit. The reason they do this is because that's actually a really good place for tiny developing insect larvae to spend their time. Um, They can feed on the sap of the tree or the sap of the plant, yeah. And they're protected from predators by being inside the plant itself. That's
0: that's a really good point. Why don't they do it more often?
2: Well, lots of them do, but it's you know it's a pretty boring life. Despite the fact it's free accommodation <laughs> with yeah. meals included, it's not much of a holiday really. If you think about it,
0: mm-hmm. you're
2: basically sealed up inside a tree. Wow,
1: well, it's like being in lockdown.
2: <laughs> <laughs> once once they get bored of this, so when they when they mature. They usually chew their way out somehow and then mate, and then the females find a new plant to become the nursery for the next generation of galls. Um, now, in most cases, the galls and the plants have evolved together over millions of years, so the insects don't threaten the health of individual plants too much, except in you know, unusual situations where you know, you may have got extensive clearing and there's only a few host plants left. that that are under attack from a lot of insects. But for the most part, the galls and the insects that create them are a normal part of the ecosystem. In some cases, if you move plants into a new area, you may expose them to gall insects they're not adapted to cope with. And I know we often hear stories about imported pest problems in Australia. Everybody knows about the cane toad and all the other feral animal problems like rabbits and foxes. An invasive weed species mm-hmm. in this story it's not the pest that was imported but the host plants that we brought to australia uh, and it's the host for a particular gall-forming insect commonly known as the citrus gall wasp
0: Oh. This um, this particular wasp is pretty famous.
2: It is, and it's it's you know it's got a, a lot of press in recent years. People are trying to you know um, sort of get rid of it. It does cause problems for the citrus industry, which has expanded uh, you know into southern parts of Australia. And there's a whole lot of citrus trees in backyards. But the citrus gall wasp is a species of tiny wasp indigenous to northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, called Brucophagus fellus which is about the size of an ant. It's really tiny. It's about two or three millimetres long. Their original host plant was a species which is now called Citrus Australasica, better known as the finger lime. So oh. you've probably seen those, oh. those cavi- the caviar yes. limes that they sell. Um, and there's a, there's a whole lot of different coloured ones. and They're, they're you know, incredible. Really flooding the market with those. Um, but when citrus cultivars were imported from overseas the brucophagus started to spread. Um, So the larva of the citrus gall wasp develop under the bark of citrus trees of all varieties, oranges, limes, mandarins, and the ever-popular lemon, which is in almost every suburb in Australia, I imagine, everywhere I've ever been, you find a lemon tree somewhere. And the swollen galls they cause often increase in size every year because the wasps, as adults, are not very active and even though they have wings, they very rarely choose to fly. They're pretty lazy, basically. Um, so <laughs> they they tend to lay their eggs on the same tree they grew up in, um, and this has been actually right. measured. Ninety five percent of wasps lay their eggs on the tree that they actually were were born in. So
0: on that particular tree and branch, like, can you cut off the gall and they get confused, or they they'll just go to a different part of the tree?
2: Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll stick around on the same tree, but they just don't fly from tree to tree. They tend to stick around in the same place. Oh, they
0: stick around. Oh. So once you've got gall wasps, there's no getting rid of them?
2: Well, not necessarily. So the galls themselves don't directly cause problems, but the increasing size of the galls, they get bigger every year because they keep laying their eggs in the same spot and they get bigger and bigger and they get noblier, and they disrupt the... Um, the vascular flow of the branches and eventually the branches start dying off. If you find trees that are seriously infested with them, you see the branches are all dead and they've got these big lumpy misshapen stems all over them. Um, so if, you know, if you find someone growing a citrus tree and you'll see them in front yards and backyards all over the place, it's really easy to find an example of a citrus gall. Um, especially on neglected trees. So if no one's looking after the tree, you'll often find that they start to succumb to the overgrowth of the galls over time. Um, and it's it's probably those trees that are the source of reinfestation for nearby trees. Um, as I said, the wasps themselves are not particularly mobile, but if you've just got a mass of them in one spot, they will continue to increase the population and the the population gets high, they will move off and find new host plants to to grow on. But look, if you do have a citrus tree, this is the time of year to look for the galls. So the middle of the year when the days are the shortest, they're least active, the the larva are still undeveloped, they're not ready to hatch. So if you look around on your citrus trees right now, you will be able to find these galls and you can identify where they are quite easily because they will be swollen parts of smaller branches they're very easy to see and you can get them under control before they hatch into adults as the weather warms up into spring it varies a little bit depending on what part of australia you're in so warmer parts of the country they will hatch earlier so get onto it as quickly as you can i guess is the trick to catching them the easiest way if you've only got a few little galls is just cut them off, but throw them in the bin. Don't don't no. leave them lying around in the garden because they can hatch even if the branches are removed from the trees. Every State Department of Agriculture has got a page on their website that tells you what are the approved and recommended ways of dealing with these gall wasps. As a problem for citrus trees in particular, they do cause issues with with the health of those plants. If you've got galls on other plants in your garden, other native plants, and if you see them out in the bush and that sort of stuff, don't worry too much about them. The plants are adapted to them. The gall wasps are adapted to the plants. It's all part of nature's big picture and it's all going fine. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science!
0: Science!